Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Hillhead at the Grosvenor. Our service this morning will be led by our Minister Katrina, and everything we need to follow the service is both on the printed order service that you were given as you came in, and also on the screen behind me. Very special welcome if you're visiting us this morning. We hope that you enjoy your time with us. Um, the children go out during the service to Sunday school if you would like to do that and just follow the people who leave halfway through. <clears throat> At the end of this service, we have tea and coffee, as always. Um, we're not entirely sure whether the new programme... Thank you, Anne. It's good to be back. I've had a lovely couple of weeks enjoying the sunshine in Chechnya or the Czech Republic, assuming both names are still legitimate, so use whichever one you prefer. Also, today is the last Sunday of my ninth year at Hillhead. I know, where's it gone? Uh, I don't know why, it feels like more of a milestone than it really is. Um, you know, next year will be 10 and that's much more significant. And I'm not planning on going anywhere and God's not giving me any hints to go anywhere. But yeah, I think it's because I moved in what would be the middle of this week, I think, or last week. Um, and anyway. It's good to be together and it's great to be back home after my holiday. I always say to my friends, you know, if I didn't really want to go home at the end of the holiday, there'd be something wrong with home. And just a secret between us, about two days before the end, I was kind of ready to come back. I had a great time, but I'd had enough. Not that there's anything wrong with Chechnya, it was just I needed to be home. A call to worship this morning comes from Psalm 104, and I'm reading it in the message paraphrase, just because it gives us a slightly different feel to these familiar words. O oh God, my God, how great you are, beautifully glorious robed, dressed up in the sunshine and all heaven stretched out for your tent. You built your palace on ocean de deeps, made a chariot out of the clouds and took off on wind wings. You commandeered the winds as messengers, appointed fire and flame as ambassadors. You set earth on a firm foundation so that nothing can shake it ever. And so let's join our voices in singing praise to this amazing God, and if you're able, you're invited to stand as we sing together, O Worship the King, All Glorious Above.
And so we come to God in prayer. And as is our normal practice here, I will lead us in a fairly short prayer. And then we will join together in the Lord's Prayer. Again, in whatever language or form feels the most normal and natural for you. A celebration of our unity in diversity as God's people in this place. So let's pray together. We come to you, loving God, just as we are, carrying within us the experiences of the week just past, with thoughts and ideas buzzing around our minds, with people we want to catch up with before we go home, and tasks awaiting us when we get there. Help us in a few moments of silence and stillness to pause and consciously lay aside the everyday distractions and focus our attention on you. (coughs) However good, bad or indifferent our week has been, whatever challenges we have faced, Whatever we have accomplished, you have been there with us in every moment of every day. Help us to be grateful for all that has been good, life-giving, affirming and joyful. Help us to let go of anything that has caused us sorrow, regret, guilt or shame. Surround us with your love, make us whole, and lead us deeper into worship, we pray. Loving God, beyond our understanding or imagining, we are glad to be together to worship you this day. And so we join our voices together in the words Jesus taught his followers, saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory,
mind if anyone who's a little bit smaller might like to come and see what I've got here. I have an object. Anybody want to come out and have a look at my object? Or not? Thank you, Kurt. Are you going that way? What can you see? It's got a face, hasn't it? It's got something on its chest. Want to see Bonnie? Yeah, can you see? I'll just go for a little walk so everybody else can have a quick look. It is. Okay, one or two people will recognise it. Has anybody seen one of these before? One or two people have. You've seen one before? Yeah. It's got a menorah on its chest, certainly. It's unusual, isn't it? Okay. Better show the choir or they'll be feeling very left out. <laughs> two people who have seen one of these before, what is it? Golem. It's a golem or a golem, yep. Um, it comes from Prague and there is a Jewish legend about the golem or golem. But did you know that golem is mentioned in the Bible? Psalm 139 <coughs> verse 16 in our version would say your eyes beheld my unformed substance. But actually, were we to use a different language, it would say, your eyes beheld my golem. golem. Because the name of this creature means something that is unformed or amorphous. There are lots of versions of the story of the golem of Prague. But basically, it's a Jewish legend that seems to have emerged and evolved in the 19th century amongst the people who were being persecuted. Life was not easy being a Jew in Prague at that time. And one of the rabbis with whom the main um, legend is associated, Rabbi Judah Loew ben Bezalel, say it confidently, nobody will know if you say it wrong. He, sorry, come, come in, come in. He, in the story, had a, had a dream, and an angel came and told him to create this creature. So he went with his, his pupils down to the banks of the river and gathered the clay and brought the clay back and created the creature. And it, usually it looks a bit more like that one in the picture, that the, the one that I bought in the first shop that I found that sold them. And he created the creature and... He wrote on a piece of paper the Shem, which apparently is the name of God. Some of the legends vary as to what he wrote. And he popped this in its mouth. And when he popped it in its mouth, it came alive. And it looked after the Jewish people of Prague. But he, he wanted it to be very devout. So every Friday evening, he would take out the Shem and it would go to sleep. Legend has it that one day he forgot. And here it goes in different directions. Some say it went on the rampage. Some say that the rabbi was afraid it might go on the rampage. So he kind of chased after it, chased it into the old new synagogue, the Staranova synagogue 
in Prague where he took out the Shem and it went to sleep permanently. Legend has it that if you go into the attic of the Staranova synagogue, you will find Gollum. Interesting story. And it leads us into realising that actually in the Bible we find all sorts of other interesting creatures. And I'm going to show you some pairs of pictures now. And in each case, one of them is found in the Bible and one of them isn't. But which is which? A satyr or satyr or satyr, depending where you went to school, or a, a centaur. Which one of those is in the Bible? Satyr? Yeah, the satyr. It's in Isaiah. Okay. A winged horse or a unicorn? Yeah. Unicorn. Unicorn is mentioned quite a lot in the Bible. No winged horses in the Bible. Uh, Garuda or Karura? Or a phoenix. Yeah, it's a phoenix. I heard a few people whispering it. Um, it has to be. You have to use a Greek um, Old Testament, a Greek Hebrew Bible, to get that. It's in the Septuagint translation of Book of Job. A dragon, or a chimera, chimera. However you say it. Somebody here say dragon. Yep, there are lots of mentions of dragons in the Bible. Lots in the Old Testament and a few in the book of Revelation. A hydra or a cockatrice? What do you think? Cockatrice. I've heard a few cockatrices and that's correct. Yep, cockatrice, which is usually apparently translated as, a, as a, an adder or a snake or a, or a viper. A Kelpie or a Behemoth? That should be easier. <laughs> yeah. So the Behemoth is in the Bible. The Kelpie, unfortunately, is not. Bit of a shame. A mermaid or a Leviathan? Yeah, a Leviathan. And lastly, a Griffin or a Ziz? Any thoughts? Ah, that's one that's got you foxed, hasn't it? It's actually the ziz that is in the Bible. It's in Psalm 50 and Psalm 80. So there you go. All sorts of weird and wonderful creatures that are mentioned in the Bible. And I suppose partly what that reminds us is that when we read the Bible, sometimes it will take us to strange places that we don't expect. It's not always just a nice, straightforward, easy read that we can make sense of. Sometimes we have to think about it a bit. Sometimes it has the power to surprise us. And that's great. It always has the power to surprise me because I always spot something I haven't seen before. But all these weird and wonderful creatures are mentioned in the Bible. And we're going to sing a song now. There were only two songs I could think of that were kind of child-friendly that sort of re reflected um, mysterious creatures. And I opted for this one because the other one, when we sang it at a, a big sing at the university chapel, it was quite clear that only people that grew up in England knew it. So I thought I'd stick with the one that hopefully is known across the entire 
UK. Who would true valour see? Let them come hither. Thank you. Our first reading is Psalm 104, starting at verse 24. Psalm 104. O Lord, how manifold are thy works! In wisdom hast thou made them all. The earth is full of thy riches. So is this great and wide sea, wherein things are creeping innumerable, both small and great beasts. There go the ships. There is that Leviathan whom thou hast made to play therein. These wait all upon thee, that thou mayest give them their meat in due season. That thou givest them, they gather. Thou openest thine hand, they are filled with good. Thou hidest thy face, they are troubled. Thou takest away their breath, they die, and return to their dust. Thou sendest forth thy spirit, they are created and thou renewest the face of the earth. The glory of the Lord shall endure forever. The Lord shall rejoice in his works. And then from Job chapter 40, starting at verse 15. Job 40. <clears throat> Behold now, Behemoth, which I made with thee, he eateth grass as an ox. Lo now, his strength is in his loins, 
and his force is in the navel of his belly. He moveth his tail like a cedar, the sinews of his stones are wrapped together. His bones are as strong pieces of brass, his bones are like bars of iron. He is the chief of the ways of God. He that made him can make his sword to approach unto him. Surely the mountains bring him forth food, where all the beasts of the field play. He lieth under the shady trees, in the covert of the reeds and the fens. The shady trees cover him with their shadow. The willows of the brook compass him about. Behold, he drinketh up a river, and hasteth not. He trusteth that he can draw up Jordan into his mouth. He taketh it with his eyes, his nose pierceth through snares. As you know, we recently um, reinvigorated our worship planning team by the addition of some younger adults, which has been great, uh, really good to hear their voices and to hear the things that interest and inspire them. And one of the things that Leo specifically thought would be an interesting thing for us to do would be to look at some of the Psalms. And so for the next few weeks, we're going to be doing that a little bit. And as we look at it, we're going to think a bit about how we approach scripture. how scripture can speak into our lives. Because obviously the Psalms originally were a hymn book um, for, the, for the early Jewish people, and yet now we have them as sacred scriptures. So how do these speak to us? How do we approach them? And we start today by recognising that what we call the poetry or the wisdom literature of the Bible has a lot of mysterious language in it. A lot of references to creatures such as those we looked at earlier. The vast majority of those creatures are mentioned in the Psalms as well as elsewhere in the Bible. And of course there are some references in the prophets, notably Isaiah and Jeremiah, and in the apocalyptic writings, Daniel and Revelation. So all through the scriptures we find these mysterious creatures are mentioned. So what do we do? with that. That's the kind of question to hold in our minds today. Because here's the thing, we live in a liberal Western society that has been hugely influenced by the Enlightenment. So the scientific method, the rational thinking, is something that the vast majority of us take for granted. It's just the way we've been brought up. We don't even think about it. Younger people are more influenced also by post-modernity, post-modernism. 
that rejects the idea of meta-narratives, that there's a big story, that actually we each have our own story, we all find, all find our own truth. And so when we come to approach scripture, without knowing it, every single one of us brings our background. So if you're 25, you come to it as a 25-year-old from the country you grew up in and the context you grew up in, and I, as a 55-year-old, come to it with my own blend of things, and if there was somebody that's 85, likewise. And it was deliberate today that I asked Grace to read to us from the King James Bible, the authorised translation of the Bible, that was first published more than 400 years ago. And one of the things I discovered a few years back is that actually, when they wrote that Bible, which they were really meticulous about their translation from Hebrew and Greek, they went back to the Hebrew and Greek to do the translations, they deliberately wrote it in old-fashioned, pompous language because this was something very special and they wanted people to grasp the gravity of this thing. So actually it was out of date language when they wrote it, so it's no wonder that for us nowadays sometimes the these and nows and f's and things confuse us. But what it does do is give us the beauty of the poetry, which sometimes is lost in more accessible translations. And it doesn't shy away from naming all of those mysterious creatures because some contemporary translations, in English at least, unfortunately my skills in any language other than English are so rubbish I couldn't possibly check, but most English translations lose a lot of these references to mysterious creatures. The behemoth and the leviathan usually manage to survive, uh, but the satyrs become dancing goats. The cockatrice is transformed into a viper. And as for the poor unicorn, the phoenix and the ziz, they simply vanish. But they're there in the Hebrew and the Greek. So if we take seriously, and I think we all do, the idea that God has inspired all scriptures then we also have to take seriously the fact that there are references to creatures we have never seen and never will see. Bible translators don't make benign choices. By converting a satyr into a goat or by losing a unicorn, they're making a theological choice. And that choice, I guess, is affected by their heartfelt, honest belief of what God is saying through the scriptures. But it also affects our ability to hear what God is saying because we're reliant on their translation. I have a suspicion, though I can't prove it, that the late 20th and early 21st century Bible translated were a bit frightened of these references to mysterious creatures that are more frequently encountered in the folk tales and the legends of actually every nation, every culture, and that predate Christianity by thousands and thousands of years. Okay, our friend the Gollum is only a couple of hundred years old, but unicorns and satyrs and dragons and things go back into time immemorial. 
Perhaps if you have a very narrow view of scripture and a very narrow view of Christianity, it's troubling to discover dragons and unicorns and zizzes and behemoths and leviathans. And if you have an idea of scriptural infallibility that says everything is fixed once and for all and there is only one meaning, then those kind of words and concepts probably are troubling. Most people that I know, and certainly most people in the United Kingdom who are Christian, are more open-minded and actually are at least aware of the role of human translators, the role of preachers, the role of com commentators who influence the way we understand these sacred texts. I'm doing that this morning. I'm offering you what I believe to be a God-steered reflection on these texts. But no preacher, no commentator is ever value or agenda free. You can't be human. So what do we do then with these strange references to behemoths and leviathans and such like? And actually, is that maybe a model for us when we come to look at other texts that are a bit worrisome or troublesome? I'm going to suggest three approaches that will be found in Bible translation, in commentaries, sermons and study guides. And all of them have got some worth. And each of them has its limits. One of the ways that people deal with these references to mysterious creatures is very literal. So they come across the description of the behemoth, which we heard a bit of. And they say, well, what kind of animal I know does that look like? And so they usually turn it into an elephant. And then the unicorn, well, that must be a rhinoceros, because we come across rhinoceroses or rhinoceri or whatever the word is. And the satyr becomes a goat, because we know in legend it's part goat. But is that justifiable? Is there any evidence of elephants or rhinos in the near Middle East in those times? Would the psalmist or the prophet have seen a rhino or an elephant or whatever it is? Frankly, the most likely answer is no. So that doesn't really work as a way of kind of making it all make sense, rationalising it. From the same school of thought comes a hypothesis that some of these creatures, at least, were dinosaurs. They're huge. And their descriptions of physical attributes can be aligned with what we know of dinosaurs. But again, there's a problem. Because it was the mid-19th century before the word dinosaur came into being. And the understanding we have has come much later. So we think we know what dinosaurs look like, but we're actually projecting back a 20th or 21st century hypothesis onto ancient texts. And if they're talking about dinosaurs, as some people say they are, then that means that humans, as we know them, and dinosaurs must have coexisted to get the stories written down. And I think if you're a scientist, that is also problematic. So this literal rationalising approach isn't entirely satisfactory. It can make the text more manageable, but 
It's not great. So what else can we do? Well, we could take a lesson from the medievals who view such references and, in fact, most of scripture as entirely symbolic or allegorical. You don't need to worry about did these creatures actually exist. What matters is what they stand for. So, for example, in some understandings, the Leviathan is a symbol for Egypt, as in the Egypt that oppressed the early Israelites. It's a sign of oppression. It's something that could destroy. And if we were to look at some of the other creatures, the creatures in Daniel or Revelation, they almost certainly symbolised political or religious entities of their own day. Anybody who's ever tried to make sense of the book of Revelation will find that commentators tie themselves in all kinds of knots about what the beasts are and what the horses are and what the dragon is and all such like. Most likely, it was a kind of almost political satire with a religious twist in its original reading. So, yep, there's some merit in that one as well. If we see them as symbolic, that has a purpose. But actually, what the heck do they symbolise? Because they weren't written last week or last year. So what do we aim to do as we grow in our faith, in our understanding of who God is of who Jesus is, when we come across these strange metaphors and symbols? Well, there's one third possibility, and it won't surprise you that this is the one that I favour, and that is mystery. Now, I know that mystery can just be a nice cop-out for that which I don't understand. I don't know, it's a mystery. Actually, that's lazy to say just that. Because what those, symbol, those creatures may have symbolised to other people is important. And that has the potential to be intriguing and inspiring. I think a rightly understood concept of mystery is not naive or simplistic. It doesn't just shrug its shoulders. Actually, it says, I don't understand. <coughs> there are questions with which I must live here. There are insights I can get from science that might be useful. It may be useful to, to bring my knowledge of the world from science or indeed any other sphere of knowledge and set it alongside it. And it is useful to see them as symbols and allegories. And it reminds us that the words of art, the word of poetry, the world of music, they all have something to speak to us as well. And we can bring these amazing texts into, into conversation with artwork or music or whatever it is that like, we like. I think the concept of mystery is one that takes delight in the inadequacy, the partiality of our knowledge and understanding. And it celebrates the playfulness of the images that are used in the Bible. What a lovely image of the dancing satyr. What a wonderful symbol of resurrection is the bird that rises from the ashes. How marvellous the symbols of the unicorn and the dragons and all the other creatures. But it goes beyond just the creatures. The wisdom literature, the Psalms and parts of the prophets and the book of Job, employ what, when I was growing up and we didn't know proper names for things, we called picture language. We have stars that sing. 
We have trees that clap their hands, a sun that rides in a chariot. We have a god who is a rock, a god who is an eagle, a god who is a tower, as well as a god who is a mother or a shepherd. And the list goes on and on. The God who spoke into creation all that is has given us many gifts. The scientific, literal approach is part of that, as is the mysterious. We have poetry, we have song, we have metaphor, we have myth. All of these have the power and ability to speak to us of the things of God. And I think, you know, when we come to the Psalms, in fact, when we come to the whole of Scripture, God loves it when we're exploring. God loves it when we come across something we don't understand and say, I need to think about that. What does it mean? What did it mean then? What does it mean now? How does it speak to my life? The God who is love the God who loves each and every one of us, just as we are, is the God who has made us curious creatures. Curious in every sense of the word, I suspect. Curious in that we have curiosity and curious in that we are interesting. So as we continue to explore Psalms over the next few weeks and as we continue to think about how we reflect on scripture I think my prayer is that God would help each of us to remember that we are loved and to remember that in this mystery there is almost always something new and wonderful for us to discover I apologise for my computer deciding to send me a reminder about something. Just, just ignore it. And then my phone did it at the back as well, so it's very embarrassing, but hey-ho. It's a mystery. So let's sing again together. In majesty and splendour and robes of light endowed is God who spreads the heavens and rides upon the cloud.
Let's come to God now with our prayers for others. Let's pray together. Loving God, once again we reach the point in our service where we bring to you our prayers for the world, for others, and for one another. We do so knowing that it's important. The Bible tells us to keep on doing it. And we know that Jesus took time to help his friends when they weren't entirely sure how to do it. But it's hard. Sometimes it can feel as if the list of concerns is so long that once we start, we might never stop. Sometimes we don't know how to pray or what to pray. And so we risk either saying something utterly bland on the one hand or making a list of impossible demands on the other. So today, we allow our thoughts about mysterious mythical creatures to inspire our prayers. In some legends, the behemoth on the land, Leviathan in the sea, and Ziz in the air serve as representatives <coughs> of all animal life and remind us of our shared responsibility to care for the earth. We pray for those who farm livestock, for those who fish the oceans, and for those whose work is concerned with the welfare and preservation of animals, asking that in all of these areas, you enable them to do so with compassion and care, and yes, even with a sense of wonder. In some understandings, the cockatrice symbolises the dangers that lurk close to infants and children, and so reminds us to pray for all who are vulnerable or at risk of harm, whatever their age or stage in life, and wherever they are. We pray especially for child refugees and asylum seekers, many of whom have become separated from or have lost their parents and siblings. Give compassion and care and wisdom to all those who work with such people. The legends of these islands tell us of unicorns and dragons, of fights between good and evil, of courage, determination and sacrifice. We pray for the people of so many diverse ethnic and religious backgrounds who inhabit our nations 
asking that tolerance, acceptance, welcome and generosity of spirit may lead to the flourishing of all people. The Phoenix legend of the bird that dies and rises to life again carries within it hints of the mysterious truth of a God who, in Christ Jesus, dies and rises to bring new life, new hope, new beginnings for all. <coughs> God of mystery and majesty, beyond our understanding, yet closer than our own breathing, accept our prayers, our stories, and weave them into your continuing story of redemption and recreation. For this we ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Generous God, we bring these gifts of our money and we bring also the gift of our intellect, the gifts of our creativity, the gifts of our labours, the gifts of our ordinary everyday lives and offer them all to you in the name of Christ. Amen. So we sing together one final hymn. O Lord, my God, when I in awesome wonder, then sings my soul, how great thou art.
I'm just back from holiday, <laughs> I thought you ought to have some um, Czech treats to enjoy. They do a marvellous gingerbread in Prague, and they're really into mushrooms. So I got you some chocolate ones. A word of blessing. Mysterious God, as we go from here, bless us with the curiosity to explore new ideas, the humility to recognise our own biases, and the courage to carry on walking in the footsteps of Jesus, now and always. Oh.